va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ozil. Marca Mesut Ozil. Bellerín, otro defensor, otro disparo, Monreal, gol. Marca el futbolista español, marca Nacho Monreal. Pim, pam, pum. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, morning to you. Morning to you too. Did you catch the Super Bowl last night? Before we, If we could avoid talking about soccer briefly. I did not. I was not going to stay awake to watch uh, that game because really I wasn't interested in any way. Um, did you? No, I watched a quarter of it, the first quarter. That took, what, then- seven hours? Something like that, yeah. Uh, I was boom, just, boom. as you can imagine, I was just waiting for Maroon Five. <laughs> to come oh, out. God. Um, yeah, that wasn't the, quite the carrot I required to keep me on till half time. Right. Well, what a day for Stan Kroenke, eh? His LA Rams lost in the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots, and uh, Arsenal lost three-one to Manchester City. I'd say, I'd say the man is gutted. Gutted. He can't. I mean, he must be feeling Bereft. so terrible. Yeah. Sure, I know. just on his 700,000-acre ranch in Texas, off which he evicted every other person and probably living creature, birds, deer, badgers, otters. Get off my land. It's cronky land only. Only cronkies are allowed on here. I'm sure he's having a and terrible And Jeremy Wilson, morning. maybe. Be- <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it was... Um, yeah, I didn't see Stan, but I'm assured he was there. You said that a couple of people messaged you saying he was there. Yeah. He must have, it must have been some jet to get him from the City game to the Super Bowl in that time. Yeah, wow. Yeah, Concord is alive and well. Um, yeah, okay. Look, we better we better get on with it. We better get on with it. And look, let, let me just state this for the record from the start. I had no expectation that we were going to go to Manchester City yesterday and win. I would have been absolutely delighted with a draw. So the fact that we didn't win is not really a big surprise to me. I suspect that's a view shared by quite a number of people in terms of what they were going into yesterday's game, their expectation levels and everything else. So why do you think there has been such an outpouring of angst in the wake of a game that more or less everybody expected us to lose? I don't know, to to, to do the catchphrase. Because honestly, I don't really understand it. Like I, you know, going into this game, I thought it was every chance we could be, get beat four or five. And I think if you'd said to me pre-game, it's 3-1, I would have said, well, that's sort of not that damaging and I'll take that and move on. And I know that that might sound like anathema to some people. It might sound like, you know, awful that I would think that. But, you know, I, I just am conscious of quite how big the gap is. And, and the game at Anfield, I think, illustrated the gulf between the top two and where we are. So I don't know why people, why some people rather, have have taken it quite so badly. I think it's maybe just because of that, because it illustrates how big that gap is and it makes you Mm. aware of it. And you can look at a league table and you can be, you know, fourth as we were earlier in the week and kid yourself that, well, you know, second and first aren't that far away from fourth. But I think what a game like this does is kind of lay bare that those league positionings, they only mean so much because realistically, we are not mm. close to a title-winning side. Should, I, maybe okay. that's it. Okay, so should then, in those circumstances, the angst at that situation not be directed more towards 
the people who are running the club rather than the manager or the head coach, as we like to call him? Or, you know, is it a case that culturally or whatever, we're, we're used to that guy being the guy who takes all, all the uh, all the criticism and all the brickbats and everything else? Um, mm. you know, I think there's something in that idea, definitely. Yeah. I think that everything that's gone on with Arsene Wenger over the last, I don't know, you know, whatever it was, probably five years, maybe mm. even ten, um, has kind of created a, a culture whereby we hold the head coach accountable for everything. And I think it's also just created like a culture of discontent where, it, yeah. you know, we take shots. And I'm not saying that criticism of Emery is not okay. Like, I think it's all, it's all right to say, I don't think that was the right decision mm. or I don't think that was appropriate. But it feels like we are constantly teetering on the precipice of sort of denouncing our coach as a fraud, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's something really interesting about what the Wenger, the last number of years under Wenger has done to the fan base. And I know it's very difficult to generalise, but it really feels like there is a complete lack of nuance when it comes to criticism of decisions as opposed to criticism necessarily of of the manager himself, right? So you can say, I don't agree with the formation or I don't agree with the setup or I think he hasn't really improved us defensively. And all of a sudden you get people from the other side going, what, you're saying you want him sacked? And it's like, no, I'm just saying that, you know, in, in this circumstance, in this game, I didn't agree with that thing. Or in general, I'm not sure that we're any better defensively than we were last season. And that's an observation, and you can make that criticism, but all of a sudden there's this, like, it feels like people from the extremes come in and try and nullify what I think yeah. are, you know, genuine observations and criticisms that are about decisions and about the way, the way we're playing and about the way we're performing, which aren't saying Emery's an asshole, Emery's a fraud, Emery should be sacked, Emery should be this, should be that, or the other. Mm. You know, it has to be possible. And it is, I think, possible to analyse what we do and how we do it and separate that from this perceived notion that you're somehow setting the dogs on the manager. I think it's really, really weird because, you know, I I, I feel like Emery's... Uh, inherited a really difficult job, has not been backed properly by uh, the people at the top of the club, particularly in the wake of three very serious injuries to three very important players, uh, two of them defenders, and defending is our big, big problem this season, and he has been given what to cope with that? Denis Suarez from Barcelona, a guy who's played 20 minutes of league football this season, and that's what the club have given him to cope with the absence of Bellerin and Rob Holding? I think it's, it's terrible. Really, the way that uh, he's been asked to deal with certain situations and the lack of investment in January, I think, is is awful as well. But you can think that and also think that there are things that he's doing which aren't quite right or good enough, in your opinion. You know, you're not, you know, being holier than thou or anything. It's it's yeah. quite odd. Well, I think, you know, the absence of nuance in a debate is not necessarily a, a new thing and not something that's exclusive to Arsenal or exclusive to football. Uh huh. Yeah. And, and we're seeing that, I think, in every debate that happens with Arsenal. I mean, think of, you know, Meza Ozil and sort of the division that exists around any discussion of him. It's the same. It's polarising. People go to one extreme or another. And I think one of the functions of social media is that what, what you actually get is people sort of aren't really 
people end up in conflict who aren't really talking to each other. I use myself as an example. So yesterday after the game, I put out a, a sort of pointed tweet being like, I, you know, I'm surpri- I find it unpleasant this sort of culture of managerial blame at Arsenal. I thought that would be gone with Arsene Wenger. And in what I'm seeing on my timeline, that's not the case at all. And then you get a bunch of quite reasonable people responding, saying, how can you say this about me? Uh, I have a sort of nuanced, balanced view where I just feel like the manager's maybe getting a couple of things wrong, but I fundamentally back him. And it's like, in the end, people are sort of responding to things that aren't directed at them, you know? So, like, in Mm. the same way that you might feel people are jumping on your back and saying, you know, don't criticise the manager. They're probably not specifically directing that at you. It's just sort of an odd thing where the two extremes of the debate yeah. are the ones that get talked about, you know? Yeah, look, I don't care. I mean, I'm I'm happy to write and say what I think about what's going on. You know, I, I, I think he's doing some things okay. I think he's doing some things not okay. And I absolutely believe he's got a very difficult job. And I, I think in some ways he's kind of struggling with the job a bit because of the circumstances in which he finds himself because of the injuries, because of the lack of investment, because of just how big a job it was to take over from, from Arsene Wenger uh, in the first place with the with the kind of squad that he inherited and some of the players that he inherited. So, mm. you know, it's, it's possible to exist and think uh, across the spectrum of... Uh, of what's going on, you know? So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, um, I don't know how we cope with that or what we, what we, what we do with that other than to say, you know, we will try here on this podcast and on the blog and everything else to maintain a nuanced view of what's happening, that if there are things to be critical of, we'll be critical of them. And if there are things that are worthy of praise, they'll they'll be praised. But nobody here is getting the hatchets out for Emery. And just because you're critical of something doesn't mean you hate him or you're, you're whatever. Some of the stuff that goes around, it, it's weird. Um. But maybe, you know, you're right. It's something that exists not just in football or not just with Arsenal, but across society as well. So, uh, look, we'll we'll do our best uh, yeah. to, to keep th- things straight and narrow. I think that is it. And I think, you know, a lot of the time the environment we're talking about here is Twitter. And, you know, it's not an original point to say 140 characters, whatever it now is, does not lend itself to, to nuance. And mm. I think... You know, but it is it is unpleasant like that. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how Arsenal fans have been through the kind of uh, almost exorcism of Wenger and have still found a way to mm. kind of be at each other's throats. Sure, but I mean, I think it's a, it's something that's highlighted or exacerbated in the immediate aftermath of a game as well. Of course, and that yeah. when when things calm down a bit, people generally have a much more balanced view on what's gone on, and the people who don't are often the people who are, are like that twenty four seven. So you, you kind of have to look at it in in that context. So. Mm. Um, as a game, I kind of feel it's one a result that we were more or less expecting, and I think one that we can probably compartmentalize and put on the shelf and say, okay, that was not great. We weren't expecting it to be great, but this is not necessarily the kind of game by which our season is going to be defined. All the same, we can talk about it and we can look at what went on yesterday. I'm curious as to what you thought about the formation because I found that I found it odd, but at the same time, in the first half, I felt it worked 
pretty well overall. I thought we gave a relatively good account of ourselves in in the first half, right up until you know they can they they scored that second goal. I thought we, there were there were positive things about that first half from an Arsenal point of view, particularly when you consider how badly we started. So let's yeah. look at the formation. What did you make of that? Well, it surprised me because when I saw the lineup, it looked to me like three at the back. Um, yeah. with Lichsteiner as a wing-back and Monreal tucked in as an extra centre-half. And it was actually, uh, you know, a really sort of <laughs> kind of old-school two banks of four, um, which I thought worked pretty well. I mean, my view on the formation is I think he had to try something. I don't think we could have gone there with, you know, the Arsene Wenger 4-2-3-1 and thought, let's take the game mm. to City and go toe-to-toe. I think we would have been decimated so I thought it was worth uh, attempting something and I could see the logic in terms of he had weaknesses at right back and he tried to put someone there in a way where you protect them obviously that didn't pan out mm. um, but it gave us a bit of an outlet on the break in the front two it was a very conservative tactic I, I wouldn't dispute that but mm. I wouldn't say it was bad and had we not conceded that goal just before half time I think yeah. we would have looked at that as a pretty positive First half, given yeah. our record at City. Yeah, also worth pointing out that Guardiola changed things around a bit as well, didn't he, with the way that he used Fernandinho. So this yeah. tactical flexibility that we worry about sometimes with Emery because we're not sure we're not sure we're necessarily working off a, a platform or a structure that the players fully understand because we seem to be playing a different formation or a different system week, every week. And I do, I do think there are legitimate questions to be asked about that. You know, maybe that's just the way that these kind of managers operate. Yeah, I think, you know... The two, the two sort of standout coaches, one maybe three in this league, are Pochettino, Klopp, and Guardiola, and they do all alternate their formation quite substantially, game to game. Um, I suppose Klopp tends to stick with the back four, but both Spurs and City will go between a three and a four, and you know change the entire shape. So I think that is kind of the modern approach. I think these players don't necessarily look comfortable doing that, but I don't know if that says more about the players than the coach, maybe. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, so, look, you know, we go into this uh, game with this formation and I don't think any manager can legislate for what Alex Iwobi did in the no. opening 30 seconds of this game. I have no idea what he was thinking. Uh, it's the kind of move we see him try on the halfway line or in the opposition half and often to quite good effect. But... Doing that on the edge of your own box is absolutely criminal, um, and we were we were punished ruthlessly by uh, by City, the cross, and by Aguero. Who it's amazing to me that he isn't talked about much more as one of the greatest strikers in the Premier League, because yeah. he, he his goal scoring record against us is unbelievable but overall his goal scoring record is is unbelievable um not here really to give credit to city players or anything like that but if you give a chance like that to a player as good as he is there's only one outcome there really is yeah i mean it was a terrible mistake from iwobi and uh, the real shame of it was that i thought at that point well we'll never know we'll never be able to gauge these tactics at all because that's completely skewed the game yeah uh, as it happened, we 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 got the equaliser, but it was a really really poor error from him. And was that the one that yeah, Crosston Aguero headed it in, right? Yeah, brilliant, think, brilliant header, brilliant. Do you think the keeper could have done any better on it? No, 
No. Okay. I, I, I wondered. I wondered. Mm, it was very close to him, I it, thought. It was very close to him, but that's why he couldn't react. It just was past him before he could even react. He was trying to get across goal and spread himself. I don't think you can criticise the goalkeeper in any way there because Aguero's, what, five yards out, four yards out? I, I, yeah, I, just, I, I mean, I actually thought Leno had a pretty decent game. I just, I just, yeah. I mean, I, I saw a replay of it from behind the goal and I thought... Uh, it's slow maybe. it's a slow motion replay another one that you're talking about but bear in mind that Aguero was thumped in that header from five yards out and by the time Leno can even react the ball has gone past him I yeah, you sure. know can't put anything on that uh, and then and then and then and then we could have been down to ten men and City could have had a penalty should have had a penalty and should have had a penalty and really. Mustafi should have been sent off I mean yeah what the fuck is that guy I, thinking? I don't know at that point because at that point, you know, it is one nil. It's it, we're still very much in the game. And, and I know, he, you, I know, you're rattled and whatever because you've conceded early. But fucking hell! Mm. Well, that must be that's the only possible explanation, isn't it? That he's absolutely rattled. Um, that he just doesn't. Uh, mm. uh, he's not thinking. But it's 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 a real lucky escape. And actually, it could have been. Th- 3-0 inside 10 minutes. I know Laporte was offside when he nodded it in, but, you know, sometimes those go against you. Um, it wasn't like he was miles off. So, you know, the game could have been over at the 10-minute mark because we were really on the ropes. Yeah, I mean, I sh- like I, I, the idea of playing ten, 10 men against Manchester City for 90 minutes, basically, yeah. was, I mean, you're thinking Burton Albion here. Um <laughs> I mean, that's I'm being realistic. You know, if City really turned the screw against a 10-man Arsenal with no defence, you know... Um, Can I just ask you a question? Which yeah. Is why, why would you fear more for a 10-man Arsenal than you would for, say, a 10-man Crystal Palace? But what do you mean? I don't understand. What I mean is, like, uh, instinctively, I know you're right. Like, a 10-man... Arsenal, yeah, I feel like they could ship seven or eight or right. something crazy like that. But when I look at other teams in the Premier League, maybe teams who are used to setting up defensively more frequently, if they lost a man, I wouldn't be like, and now it will be eight. Do you understand? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's us projecting onto our own defensive uh, frailties because we're so bombarded with them week after week after week. You know, we see them week after week. And I was going to save this for a bit later on, but the reality of our our season isn't so much our lack of goals or a lack of creativity, even though I think that's an issue and something we might come to a bit later on. The bottom line, when you look at Arsenal's season, is how bad we are at the back. We've conceded more goals than the other teams in the top six. We're now in sixth, by the way, uh, having started the day in... Well, no, we didn't start in fourth, but we were fourth at one point this week because of what happened to Chelsea at, at Bournemouth. But we've also conceded more goals in Crystal Palace and Newcastle and Watford and Leicester and Wolves. So mm. I think that is what plays into our fears. The, the lack of any discernible improvement from a defensive point of view... And the very obvious lack of quality that there is in a number of our defenders, and that was on display yesterday. Mustafi, absolutely uh, blessed not to have been sent off. And I I think had that happened, and had he been sent off for that, you know, there would be 
no mercy whatsoever for him. And I think already he's at a point in his Arsenal career where where there's no way back. I just don't think there's any way back for Mustafi at this point. You know, we've got him until the end of the season and then in the summer they absolutely have to move him on because as we've seen in the past with players, once you once you lose a critical mass of the fan base, there's literally no way back because you can do 99 things right and the one thing you do wrong is what everybody sees. And that's mm. the reality. And that's not, again, that's not something that's unique to Arsenal fans. It happens uh, at every club with all kinds of players that they just lose the connection and, and you've got no choice at that point but to move them on. And Stefan Licksteiner, who I think uh, just is a... I don't want to be cruel or anything like it. And in some ways, I kind of feel a bit sorry for him because he's just so off the pace in Premier League terms that it's kind of hard to watch. Yeah, and I, I do think that it's wrong to say that he's kind of a, a joke of a player. I mean, no. if you look at what he's won and the career that he's had, you know, it, it, at his best, he was a better right-back than most right-backs, you know, out there. But he's not at that point now. And I thought what was really odd about the... I mean, we'll, you know, we scored an equaliser in between them, but I thought what was really odd about the City's second goal was that that's nothing to do with pace or no. fitness. He just switched off there. Yeah, I mean, that's um, where that's where you want to see the benefit of a 35-year-old right-back who has been in the game for a long time and knows what's going to happen because we could see it. We knew what was going to happen and instead he got drawn to the ball like a 20-year-old defender. You know, and and look, it was a lovely slick move from City, but it was one of those where you're looking for an experienced player to be able to read the game and cut out the danger. And instead, he just made it relatively easy for Sterling to square the ball to the back post and Aguero for a uh, for a tap in. So, you know, in, in general, though, he's a player who offers us very little. Um, and I think when we look at our four signings, five signings from last summer. Um, I think his is probably the one that's least suited to this team, least suited to the way that Emery wants to play. And I think maybe people overestimated what he could do in the Premier League. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we wouldn't have signed him if we if we felt that he was going to produce this kind of performance. And I think as well, I've said it before, but his he's kind of what happens when the coach doesn't sign the players. You know, he yeah. he's someone who was brought in before Emery and completely ill-suited to the way Emery wants his fullbacks to operate. And uh, I, I, I actually do feel sorry for him. I know probably there are people out there who don't and they just think he's taking his money and blah, blah, blah. But I think it must be pretty painful for him, for his shortcomings to be exposed. And basically for him to sort of be watching his top-level career kind of end in front of his eyes must be mm. tricky. Yeah, but, I agree. You know, that I, that is what's happening. Yeah, but it's a reality we have to address. That's yeah, yeah, the other side sure. of it, you know, and uh, sympathy, you know, for him is not going to get us anywhere really when we've got a lot of football left to play this season. And, you know, I, I think there are probably still games where he could be useful to us, but in general, I think we've got to find something different between now and the end of the season. Maybe we can talk about that in, in part two. Um, one of the things that occurred to me as I was watching this was 
Um, you, you said when you looked at the lineup that you could see how it could be a back five or back three, yeah. you know, with a back five. And over the course of that first half, despite the fact we gave a good, a relatively good account of ourselves, it was obvious to me that we were getting pulled apart when City switched the play. You know, Kolasinac was drifting way too far infield. I know he was trying to pack the midfield a little bit with the two players. Um, Kolasinac and Iwobi attracted too far inside, left the fullbacks all over the place uh, and scrambling to uh, to cope with City when they put the ball in those wide positions, which ultimately is where that second goal came, for, uh, came from just before just before half time. Were you a little bit surprised that he didn't go back to a back three? I mean, it was a point made by Gary Neville, I think, in commentary, that City used the width of the pitch so effectively that a back five can actually be quite helpful because it just simply enables you to have coverage. You know, they switch the play so quick, it means you don't get caught out shuttling across. And uh, I, I did think that, and I must be honest as, as well, you know, I when I first saw the lineup, one of my initial reactions was, are we going to get overrun here in the middle of the park? You know, mm. we went with two strikers left Aaron Ramsey out and I did wonder if something like his energy might have been uh, more helpful than a second forward simply because you know I thought Torreira and Gunduzi, I'm sure we'll get on to Gunduzi later but I thought they both did pretty well on the day but they mm. had a nightmare trying to keep track of City's runners I mean Gunduzi basically had to man mark Kevin De Bruyne at times and uh, it, it was he ended up almost playing as like a fifth defender, you know, right yeah. in that back four when he was going backwards. So there were things about the shape that I do think uh, caused us issues. And it was disappointing, I think, that Iwobi and Kalasnach, who'd been picked really to be sort of uh, almost, you know, cover, immediate cover for the fullbacks, I thought they didn't really do that job as well as you'd expect them to do. No, I mean, I don't think Iwobi plays well from the right in general. No. I don't think that's his strongest side. He's very rarely deployed as a traditional, what you might call, right-sided midfield player, mm. the way we used to see Freddie Jumberg or Ray Parler, for example, because it's generally been a long time since we played a 4-4-2, even if both of the, both of them, Iwobi and Kalasinac, sort of tucked in a little bit uh, into the centre of midfield. You know, you look at the third goal as well, Iwobi scrambling to get across his effort at a tackle on the edge of the box is is pretty poor as well uh, I know Licksteiner cops some flack for that but I think Iwobi has to take some of the blame there too because of his lack of defensive uh, awareness and ability um, so I was a little bit surprised you know that this ongoing issue wasn't addressed by the coach at half time uh, and one of those where I was kind of expecting a half time change and we didn't get it yeah, um, and and it was that right side where we were most vulnerable. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, that was pretty clear. I think all through the game, actually, and it shouldn't be a huge surprise. I mean, you've got a guy Lichtsteiner who is on his last legs, if not off his last legs, and a guy in Iwobi who we know doesn't play well on the right hand side. Uh, it's not a position where he tends to excel. Exactly, and again, this is where you can sort of point to the decisions that the head coach makes and question them. Yeah, because if I you're, think that's completely reasonable. Yeah, uh, you know, and and there were alternatives. I mean, for example, if you wanted to keep that shape, you could have played an Aaron Ramsey, say, on the right hand side, and would he have been any worse than a Wobi? I, I suspect not. Mm. Um, so yeah, you've, you've. But I mean, I think with the Ramsey thing, 
I mean, maybe we'll come on to this, but it feels like there's there's more going on. You know, there's no way you pick that 11, picking your best players and Ramsey's not in it, you know? I was very surprised Ramsey didn't start the game, particularly because when I looked at the formation, I, I thought it was, you know, the three at the back. And I was, even with a back four, I you know, I think I would have sacrificed one of the strikers from the start to put Ramsey in midfield. Mm. Uh, to give us a, a bit more in there and somebody who could, in theory, connect the areas of the pitch because what we had were two strikers who got no service from anybody throughout this no. game. You know, and it's 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 all well and good to have... I, I think it's great that we've got two amazing strikers, but asking them to basically create for each other. I know that's quite often what what strike partnerships did in the past. You know, you remember the days when they used to talk about who's got the best strike partnership and, and often we'd see them link up brilliantly, Bergkamp and Henri, Sutton and Shearer, all that kind of stuff where, where, where strikers can actually uh, feed each other and, and create chances for each other. And interestingly, in the first half, probably our best attacking moment or most threatening attacking moment came when Lacazette fed Aubameyang. Ederson was out very quickly as a sweeper-keeper yeah, and did, keeping. you know, it was really, really good goalkeeping. But that was kind of our most dangerous moment, but it was Lacazette feeding Aubameyang. And, you know, they both worked really hard, but, you know, what what can either of them do on the halfway line when they're picking the ball up with their back to goal and they've got eight Arsenal players behind them? It's, you know... Yeah. It's I must say, difficult. I thought Lacazette did very well yeah. in the, in a lot of those situations, and his transformation as a player from a year ago is, is quite amazing in terms of how how much more physically dominant he's able to be. But yes, I mean, Aubameyang worked really hard. He did a lot of leg work, but you know, by his nature, he becomes a bit of a passenger. I'm not at all saying that in a critical sense, but you know, he's completely reliant on service, and when there is none, you know. All, all he's really doing is chasing around and trying to close stuff down. What, what would Sergio Aguero have done in our team yesterday? Yeah, well, very little. Very, very little. So, uh, you know, it's not really about the calibre of the striker. It's about the way uh, that you play or, or the, uh, the ability to get the ball to the striker in areas where they can do some damage. And we know that Aubameyang is a clinical finisher and we have nobody on the pitch who can who can create for him, really. Uh, Iwobi is probably the only one, but you're playing him to provide cover for a right-back who's struggling uh, and that's not his game anyway, so... Yeah, I mean, you're looking, at, you're looking to Iwobi and Klasnac and, I mean, in pure numbers terms, those guys do produce chances for people. But in, in that system, do they? Well, yeah. exactly. They've never played in that system and they need people to... Certainly Kolasinac needs people to feed him. And that guy, nine times out of ten, is Iwobi, who in this game is playing right over on the other side of the pitch. So you've broken up a really effective partnership there. Um, and, you know, that is has been our best attacking weapon of late. I mean, the, the difficulty is, and I think this is sort of like the, the crux, really, of any discussion of the tactics in this game, is the balance. You know, it's about the balance between defence and attack and it's very clear we went into this game with a defensive emphasis yeah and so the question becomes about how much uh, attacking or creative talent given uh, the slightly ephemeral nature of some of the creative players we have can you afford Mm. in this game with that plan you know yeah. Um, any issues with the third goal? I know a lot of people were screaming for handball and saying, well, VAR would 
VAR would have disallowed that goal. VAR would have sent off Mustafi and given them a penalty, by the way. So, um, Oh, I'm terrified about VAR. <laughs> yeah, I think when got, VAR we've, comes in. We've got to get rid of Mustafi before VAR happens. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and Socrates is going to have to clean up his game no end. But I think, yeah, I mean, it is a handball. It is a handball. I think but... it's accidental, though. I don't think he meant to handle it. No, I think you're right. I mean, it's a sort of curious loophole in the law, though. Like, if it's accidental, but you put it in the net, is that a goal? Do you know ask, what I mean? It's ask like... Lauren Koscielny and ask Burnley yeah. fans how they feel about yeah. that. You know, it's That's true. swings and roundabouts, really. Um, it was a sort of crazy one as well, because he actually didn't really get enough contact to sort of carry the ball easily into the net. But then Leno and Koscielny kind of were on top of each other, weren't they? Yeah. That prevented either of them getting to it. Mm. Um, I mean, look, they, they managed to get a cross in to Sergio Aguero, four yards from goal. Yeah. Kind of whatever happened from that point is something of an irrelevance. Yeah, funny what happens when you get the ball into your striker right in front of goal. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think um, watching it, I, I'm just watching it back now. I mean, it's Sterling's actually up against Iwobi and Licksteiner and doesn't make either of them look great with a sort of little one-two shimmy. No, I mean, Iwobi's defending for that is really bad. Yeah, really bad. Yeah. It's the sort of defending... You know, we we criticise Denilson for if you're that kind of wave it's of leg, leg out. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just that. And Oxley Chamberlain actually, Oxley Chamberlain was the master of that kind of defending in our mm. in our final third, where you know he'd actually got himself more or less into the right position, but uh, the way that he uh, attempted to defend, if you could call it that. I'm just going to watch it back here. Oh come on, that's bad. And Licksteiner, yeah, Licksteiner's slow. Licksteiner. I mean, that's Licksteiner's. Just slow. I mean, that's all it is, really. Yeah. He ends up going with his wrong foot, Licksteiner, which is kind of weird. I think it's just, literally he can't turn in time. Yeah, he's not. He just doesn't have the, the the agility anymore to do it. Arsenal players complaining about handball, but look, uh, I don't think it was. I don't think it was uh, deliberate in any way, and I don't really think it would have made that much difference. Uh, I don't oh, yeah, know. Okay, you can say that. Of course, it's two one, and we could get a set piece, and we could score a goal, and then the the game changes. But yeah, like I, I think. But 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 let's put the, that in the context of our second half, where sure. Manchester I don't think City we did enough really. No, Manchester City had thirteen attempts on goal. We had none, no attempts yeah. on goal. And if you read the by the numbers piece by Scott on Arsblog News. Uh, you'll see that this is the seventh half in which we have had no attempts on target. Seven times we've played a half of football without an attempt on target this season. So it's not something it's not that's, good. it's just restricted to uh, teams like Manchester City. So, um, yeah. That is not good. That is not good. A, I must say, I, I don't necessarily share the view that Meza Urza would have helped. I have to be honest. Okay, I I agree with you. I I agree with you because we've seen Ozil come on as a substitute in the past against uh, worst teams in Manchester City and have absolutely no effect. And he ca- he came on in this fixture last season, and I went back and sort of looked at it, and you know we were all like up in arms saying he had no influence when he came on, didn't affect a big game. Yeah. Blah, blah blah blah. I get it, but I think there's something. It's hard not to read something into a decision like the one Emery made yesterday. So he's brought on Aaron Ramsey, which absolutely was a good substitution. I figured it would be for Iwobi or Kolasinac. I, I thought the two wide players were the ones who would go. Um, 
I just think if you're trying to get something out of a game in which you're 3-1 down and you're putting on a guy who's just come in on loan, had a couple of training sessions, doesn't really know the players that well, has played, James, not even 20 minutes of league football. I know he had a couple of Copa appearances for Barcelona. You know, in terms of minutes this season, he's played very, very little. You're throwing him in against the best team, one of the best teams in England for sure. And you're leaving on the bench a guy who, whatever you think of him and whatever you might think of the influence he might have, and I I tend to agree with you uh, about Ozil that he's come on as a substitute and done very little in previous games. I just think there's something about the intent of the change. Like, what was he expecting Suarez to be able to do that Ozil couldn't? I don't know. You know? He was on a hiding to nothing. Suarez and and I must say I don't say this at all to judge the player it was a nightmare scenario to come on I'm sure he's going to be terrific but looking at him coming on you know it was a really tough debut I mean you know and he looked he looked off the pace you know he looked not ready for the physicality exactly I I thought he doesn't look Um, like a guy who's in any way match fit and 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 interestingly he doesn't look like a guy necessarily who's going to give you um, some of the things Meza Ozil doesn't. That, and that's just at first glance. Yeah, of but. course. You know, I'm not making any judgment on him uh, as a player. I just wonder what Emery was really expecting from him. What was he expecting him to come on and do in those circumstances? And would it not have been more beneficial for the team that uh, Ozil, despite his deficiencies, could at least try and connect with the two strikers that we have or connect with players who could provide for the strikers that we have. You know, he is a creative player, somebody who could have given us something when it was pretty obvious that Suarez really wasn't going to give us anything in those circumstances based on his recent arrival and his lack of match fitness and match sharpness and everything else. yeah, I, I think I, I completely understand what you're saying. To play sort of devil's advocate or, you know, Unai's advocate, I uh, maybe what he was thinking is I, if I bring Suarez on, you know, I'm, I'm at least beginning the process of acclimatisation. Like this guy's basically got three months in English football. And in that respect, every minute is potentially precious. And if Meza Ozil isn't part of my plans moving forward, but this guy maybe is then I choose to invest that playing time in him. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that... It's clear to everyone, right? Meza Ozil is not in Uno Emery's plans. Like, that, that's fact, yeah. really. Yeah, you can't, you can't ignore that. I mean, a theory I saw posited online, um, and I forget originally by who, was... Could there... I mean, and this is like real conspiracy theory stuff, but could there be a financial component to it? You know, is it possible that Meza Ozil's three hundred fifty grand a week? You know, is two hundred fifty grand a week, but a hundred grand if he plays? Oh, there will be for sure a big appearance, uh, an appearance part of that. Like, there's no way his three hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week is basic. Yeah, you know, I'd say part of it is, uh, you know, there'd be a basic. Uh, salary, but then there would be appearances, there would be goals, there would be, you know, uh, assists, win bonuses, etc., mm. etc. So. It depends how financially strapped we are. 
the idea that perhaps Emery is being told, don't use Ozil uh, because it's going to cost us an extra 100 grand a week. I'm not sure I necessarily buy that. Any any coach no. that is being hamstrung like that, uh, you know, he's not... I, I don't think that would be the case, and I don't think he would accept that. I just... Uh, I, I sort of more think that there must be collusion between the coach and the people running the club about Ozil. I really do. Collusion. Like, That's a big <laughs> word, James. No, I just think that they... The situation is so, in my opinion, grave and so serious that I think there must be uh, joined up thinking on the idea that they want to get this guy out. Yeah, they want to force him out. I mean, I think it's clear that's what's happening. They want to force him out. They want to make him so uncomfortable at Arsenal, despite his salary, that he has no option if he wants to play football than to go somewhere else and maybe accept terms which aren't as favourable or Arsenal might have to supplement um, whatever he's getting at another club, you know, a golden handshake. Or, or if there's a transfer fee for Mesut Ozil, then Mesut Ozil gets a chunk of that transfer fee. I think it's pretty clear that's what's happening. But in the yeah. very short term, it's not helping us win football games. And, you know, people will say Ozil played for 75, 76 minutes against Cardiff the other night and wasn't great, which is true. So, you know, it's uh, it's kind of one of those where when a player is, you know, when a player's out injured and you're waiting for him to come back and exponentially he becomes a better player week after week after week, particularly when a team is not playing as well. The Mavropanos effect. Yes, exactly. And look, we've seen it with, with countless players uh, in the past. I think Liverpool are, are experiencing that with, with Oxlade-Chamberlain to an extent as well. Um, look, it's a shit situation. We've been over it countless times. It's a it's a shit situation. Um, I don't know but what... Yeah, it, I, I know, I, I think it's an interesting... Discussion. I mean, I feel like I am ready. Personally, I'm like ready for that to be over. I'm like, I, you know, I, if it's up to me, if there was a way to get Ozil to leave the club in January, I would have taken that route. And you know, and I know it was talked about potentially with this loan to PSG, simply because I feel like it is quite toxic, and it's clearly not going to work. I think between the coach and the player, and if if I was so invested in the player that I was like he's our best chance of success and you know he should be the man the team's built around for the next three or four years then it would be different but I think we've seen teams built around Mesut Ozil to an extent and they haven't delivered what we want so I'm ready to start a whole new project yeah um the problem is we can't start that at least until the summer yeah yeah uh, and 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 what happens between now and then like I don't believe that Dennis Suarez or Alex Awobi are better footballers than Mesut Ozil. No. I'm not, I'm not so crazy as to suggest that. Um, it's just clear that, that they somehow fit into the manager's idea better. But, you know, I then you, I, I know what you're saying, but then how does Iwobi somehow fit into the plans better by playing him uh, as a right-sided midfielder and asking him to do, do a job to which he's really not suited and basically not very good at? You know, yeah. I think if we talk about Emery being a pragmatist, he's going to have to be a little more pragmatic with, with Mesut Ozil. Um, well, then, I, then I think, do you, go on, sorry, do you, I was just going to say, I'm, where it breaks down for me is when you look at this different treatment of Ramsey and Ozil. I mean, Ramsey is not starting every game. And I do actually have some sympathy with that because I think 
you know, if you played him every week and you built a team that worked with him and then at the end of the season you had to replace him, I think people go, well, why did you invest all that time in Ramsey? I do think there is a logic to, I'm not going to make this guy the kind of central element of my team. Sure, but can you not can you not then identify a Ramsey-style player to replace Ramsey if you discover that playing Ramsey actually works? It's much easier to find that kind of a player than to find another Mesut Ozil. Yeah, I, I, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I, it's, it's, I don't think either is particularly easy. But what I was going to say is that despite all that, I do think Emery does use Ramsey. I mean, he brings him mm. on yeah. in big games. He starts him in big games, as he did against Chelsea. And it's difficult to escape that idea that the reason that he's kind of content with using Ramsey is because Ramsey's future is already settled. You know, the, the contract was sorted out in November. In some respects, he kind of knows what's happening there. Whereas with Ozil, I think, I, I do really believe they're sort of saying to him, look, you've got to go and it's going to cost you. And, you know, have you seen the Sunderland documentary on Netflix? No, I haven't. There's a, a bizarre, I've only seen about half of it, but there's a bizarre scene in it where Jack Rodwell, who Sunderland consented to pay, I think, £60,000 a week when they're in the Premier League, is the only player who doesn't have a relegation clause in his contract. So they go down to the championship and Rodwell, who's not in the team, is earning 60 grand every week. And the chief executive calls him into his office and says, you need to think about what this is doing to the club. You need to you need to quit, basically. You need to tear up your contract and walk away. It's what unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. And Rodwell comes back and he's like, I'm not going to do that, actually. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay because it's sort of, you sort of decided to pay me this money. And it kind of made me think a little bit of the Ozil situation. I'm not suggesting that anyone's doing that to Ozil, but I think there is a... I think that's the message, isn't it? Yeah, I think it could well be. Um, Well, look, let's move away from Mesut Ozil because that's a a subject um, that we've done to death and probably will continue to do before (laughs) the season's over. Yeah, I don't think... It's not over. No, it's definitely not. It's definitely not. But... Matteo Genduzzi, I think, before we move on to part two, deserves a huge amount of credit for what was an absolutely fantastic display in very difficult circumstances against a very good team in an Arsenal team that didn't play particularly well. I thought he was absolutely outstanding. And a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, I raised some some concerns about the fact that we were expecting an awful lot from a 19-year-old player. It wasn't to denigrate him as a player, but just concerned that maybe we were asking a lot of a guy making the big step up that he made up. But man, he was brilliant. I thought he was absolutely fantastic yesterday. Superb on the ball. In the first half, I think he he ended the first half with 100% pass completion. Um, When you look at some of the other statistics, nobody really matches up to that. And I think he deserves uh, some credit this morning before we put this game to bed. Yeah, and they're not always just sideways passes. I mean, there were some nice crossfield balls in there. He always looks to advance the play. I mean, the fact that he's 19 years old and Unai Emery was able to call him over to the touchline during a break in play and say, you've got to follow De Bruyne, you know, track him into the box. I mean, that's yeah. huge responsibility. And, and I said on Twitter, I don't think he's perfect. And we saw that early on in the first 10 minutes, someone ran off the back of him, didn't they, quite easily and got into the box. And he does have to improve his defensive awareness, I think, if he's going to play that position in the long term. But his overriding characteristic, and I think the reason he's so exciting and made such huge impact, leaving aside all the technical stuff, I think the force of his personality is 
quite extraordinary. I mean, he is not daunted by anything, by any opposition, no. by any occasion. You know, he goes out there and plays his game and he since he's walked into the club from League Two, he's acted a bit like he owns the place. And I think... You know, it's one of those intangibles. But In a good way, I think you're saying here. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. It's it's startling confidence, and I think that's something that the best players have. And I think another factor with him is, you know, inevitably you compare him to kind of previous teenagers who've broken through into the Arsenal midfield, you know, Aaron Ramsey, Cesc Fabregas maybe one, but when you think about Cesc coming into, he was coming into the Invincibles, you know, he was coming into a team with loads of structure, with really experienced guys alongside him, winners alongside him. Uh, and I know he was younger than Gendouzi, but Gendouzi's come into a team in a bit of disarray, really, in a period of transition. And he's absolutely made his mark. I thought this was a a standout performance. Mm. And, uh, you know, in, in Sven Mislintat's last week at the club, it's one of those things that makes me slightly rueful and slightly regretful because... He shows what can be done. If you if you find these gems on the transfer market, you know, and that, that has to be the way we go about it. And I worry that we might have lost the guy best suited to finding them. Well, exactly. You know, this to me was always going to be our way of uh, becoming truly competitive again because we understand that we're not going to spend huge amounts on players. We're not going to be able to do what Manchester City do. We're not going to be able to do even what Liverpool do because we don't sell well enough yet to, to uh, you know, sell a player and reinvest. And someone like Gendouzi and someone like Torreira, both of whom were identified by Mislintat, um, you know, those are probably two of the, the signings of the season. And you Definitely. wonder, you wonder how our recruitment is going to go this summer without, without Sven. And people can say his record is patchy, but, you know, on the basis of what we see from Genduzzi yesterday, those are the kind of players that we need to bring into this club to begin that process of regeneration, you know, that you're talking about mm. uh, to, to, to move to a different era. I think if, if you're looking for any signs of encouragement, and it would be nice to find some uh, after a sort of disappointing defeat like that, I do think the fact that you look at Lucas Torreira, he's 22, you look at Genduzzi, He's 19. You know, those guys were paired together in central midfield and potentially they could be there, the, the, the hub of this kind of new mm. team that we envisage. And we're talking about Aaron Ramsey and Mesut Ozil, but the reality is those guys kind of already belong to to the past. And I, I, I you just have to hope that come this summer, I mean, we've talked all through January about how big the summer's going to be. You have to hope we can find some more gems like that because they've been a real shining light in a season that, you know, has definitely had its ups and downs. Yeah, it sure has. So, look, I think this game, uh, as frustrating as elements of it were, is one we have to just put away, uh, stick on the shelf. We weren't expecting to win. We didn't win. We've got three games now coming up against Huddersfield, Southampton and Bournemouth, I think, where you're looking at the team building some momentum ahead of a North London derby. And I think those three games are f not... I don't want to say that the City game wasn't important because how you perform against the big teams is clearly an issue. But I think we have to look at it in some kind of isolation and say, right, if we can come away from the next three games with nine points, then I think that's something we can live with, obviously. And I think that's probably more in line with the expectations we have for the team. 
Yes, and we've now been away to City, we've been away to United, we've been away to Liverpool, we've been away to Chelsea. It's only the North London derby remaining in terms of trips away to the big six. So, you know, in theory, we're kind of through the worst of it as far as the fixture list goes. And now we absolutely have to get back to doing what we were doing in that unbeaten run at the start of the season, you know, grinding out, getting the points against the weaker teams. Uh, And also... I think pushing hard in the Europa League. You know, we've got those two games against Bati Borisov. There's no uh, fixture in between them. So I think we can put some real focus on that because, you know, with United and Chelsea coming strong again this weekend, that that might be our best shot at the Champions League. Yeah, for sure. And remember as well, you know, it's Tottenham and then Manchester United. So Tottenham away, Manchester United sure. at home. Uh, you know, and that's, I mean, that's a game, that's a huge game because of how well United are going. It's one of those that could be like a top four, six pointer in a way. So, yeah. So that's yeah. March the 10th is that Man United game. Yeah. So I think genuinely between now and then we will know if we can make the top four or not. It'll be so decisive this period. Mm. Okay. We are going to take a break. We're going to come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. Quick question here from Matthew Schultz, who's at Matt Shue, who says, when you take the break between part one and part two, what are you doing and for how long? For the listeners, it's a three second jingle, but for you, who knows? Oh, they'd mm. love to know, wouldn't they? They'd yeah. love to know the things we do. Oh, man. Oh, wow. Sometimes we get a drink. Perhaps. Sometimes we go to the toilet. Go to the It's living. really exciting stuff. Unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff. We should release it for the Patreon subscribers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the halftime break. Super HD yeah. video of us sitting there going, uh, is that, mm. is that question about what's our best 11? We better check the Facebook. It's mainly yeah. us saying we better check the Facebook. <laughs> I have a question here. Oh, just to mention, a few people have asked us if we could do the points prediction thing where we look at our... Um, fixtures and maybe the teams around us and try and predict where we're going to finish based on the fixtures we have left. After these next three games against um, Huddersfield, Southampton and Bournemouth, that will leave us with 10 games left to play. And I think that's probably the right mark at which to make the predictions, not just for our games, but also for the uh, for the teams that might be in contention to finish in the top four along with us, which are probably Manchester United and Chelsea. So after these three games, which uh, hopefully we'll take three points from in each of them, uh, we'll, we'll sit down and do that. But here's a question to start off with from... Uh, you think I would have had this ready. The other thing that we do during the break is we make sure that we don't have any questions ready we for hide when... all the questions. Yeah. Fuck. It was right here. Okay. This comes from Arsenal, who's at Gunnar Taj, who says, can you discuss why you think our fan base are panicking when we're only 16 points off last season's total? We're 39 points still to play for and only two of the top six left to play. Surely we're in good shape only being three points off fourth at this stage of the season. And he says, sorry, some of the fan base. Yeah, that's a a good little amendment. I mean... I think it is a fair point. I think we're better off 
Uh, I think I'm right in saying we're better off points-wise than we were after this many games last season, and we're closer to the top four, certainly, than we were at this point last season. I think maybe... I think maybe the panic, where does the panic come from? Maybe the fact that, you know, United and Chelsea were kind of reliant on them to slip up and they both look like, you know, Chelsea have brought in a striker which might give them a bit of momentum. United look a different team under Solskjaer. So maybe we are just sort of sensing the door closing on us somewhat. But uh, I, I think a lot of it is also to do with the unbeaten run in the first half of the season. I think that created or shifted expectations a little bit and then maybe what's followed has been a bit of a reality check, you know? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I also think, you know, the the defensive issues that I mentioned earlier on are prevalent in everybody's thinking when they yeah. when they think about this team and the ability to concede goals to almost everybody at any moment. That's an issue which hasn't gone away. And I think it was one which people probably hoped would have been better at this point of the season after six months of Unai Emery. We're not defensively any better uh, than we were last season. And that's a reality. And that's a difficult reality to have to, to live with when you you are trying to do something that's already very difficult. Um, I also think panic is not necessarily the word I would use, but I also think that the fact that we are switching so often between styles from game to game isn't allowing people to get comfortable with what we're doing. I think uh, Tim Stillman wrote a really good piece uh, for his column last week on Arsblog. Uh, The title of it escapes me now, so I'm just going to go back and look at it so you can view it on site. It's on arsblog.com, and the title of it is Down by the River, and it it touches on the lack of identity in some ways, uh, which makes it difficult to get behind things. When you can't really see what's going on... um, or any consistency in what we're doing, it, it makes people worry. You know, if you can see that we're trying to do this and it's not quite working this week and it's a bit better the, the next week and a bit better the week after that and you can see some tangible progress, you know, it makes it easier to deal with things when they don't necessarily go as well as you would like. Uh, mm. Whereas constantly shifting formation is, I think part of what makes people worry because it feels in some ways like it's Emery scrambling around trying to find solutions to problems that we can all see, you know, which is um, maybe ties into this question, if you don't mind me going again, from Angus Kwong, who's at Angus underscore underscore Kwong, who says, what are your views on Emery from being a protagonist at the start of the season to adopting a slightly underwhelming pragmatic approach? Well, just to jump back slightly, personally, I think that the sort of anxiety about the formation changes is a bit misplaced. Because I, I do, as I said at the top of the show, I think that, you know, a modern coach shifts formation quite often and the identity is not contingent on the formation. And actually, you know, when we beat Chelsea, we played with that diamond in midfield and I had a lot of people saying, this is it, this is the shape, we've got to, you know, embrace this, go with it, four at the back, diamond in midfield. We played that against Cardiff, I recall correctly, and people were saying, this is too negative, we haven't got enough creative players on the pitch. You know, so it seems like the goalposts get moved a little bit on that one for me. I think that the identity shouldn't be based on the formation. I think there are still valid questions over, well, then what is that identity? Um, And what was the question just recently? Sorry. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, the, que- the, the question was, uh, what are your views on Emery, uh, you know, talking about being a protagonist? Oh, pr- oh right, yeah. That Well, that, I think, is... A, a, I genuinely feel like that something must have been lost in translation there because mm. I don't feel that that is his... That's not what I see from him as a coach. He feels to me like a reactive coach who looks at the opposition and thinks, how can I um, change my tactics to, to counteract them? Uh, which is not how I would define being a protagonist, you know. Mm. That feels that feels like something that really has been lost. And it, I would say, to be fair to him, I haven't really heard him say it again. I mean, have you? No, that's true. That's true. I suppose that's his idea when he's talking about what's his ideal football philosophy. Uh, you know, we've spoken throughout the season and other people have made the observation that he maybe can't play the way he wants to play with the players at his disposal. Hence this, I'm not going to say scattergun, but game-to-game approach in terms of mm. how he how he sets up his team and the formations he uses. So, Yeah, it does, I mean... I do think that, you know, a lot of what he said in that initial press conference, you're not really seeing that pay dividends yet or or come to fruition. Um, I mean, this question from Goomba, who's at Remy Goomba, says, what is Emery's value add at this moment in time? It doesn't see, it's not tactical. It's not stylistic. It doesn't seem to be motivational. And you can only point to marginal individual improvements. Does more time and money unlock more value from Emery? Whoa, that's a good question. I think... think, Go on. You go. Well, I was going to say, I think individual improvements, I think, is actually one of his big, strong suits. Like, I think if you look at our squad and say, well, look at Hector Bellerin, Rob Holding, Alex Awobi, even... Petr Cech, like there are individuals in this team who I think are performing markedly better than they were last season. Okay, but the question says marginal individual improvements. I don't think those are marginal. I don't think what Rob Holding did this season was marginal. I agree. I I think Bellerin's uh, improvement was significant and Holding's was significant. I think there have been times when Iwobi has looked much improved but yesterday definitely did not and I've got some questions on on Iwobi now in, in a moment what about uh, Kalasinac Lacazette like, I think there are a lot of individuals in this squad who are playing better I think Lacazette is Kalasinac I still have like if football was a game played only in the final third Kalasinac would be a tremendous asset to us but he wasn't like that last season like, this is the thing. I, I, it's weird how, like, Lacazette, we're all going, well, credit to Lacazette. But no one's saying maybe the coach had something to do with it. Fair. You know? Okay. Uh, so I think individual improvements, I think he has improved. Well, I'd say a, a decent chunk of the team have improved under his management. Whether or not it's down to them or down to him is impossible to know. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So does more time and money unlock more value from Emery? I think probably yes. I think it probably does. I, I think it but, would be very unfair not to give him that time and not to give him that money and expect us to to do what we all expect us to do or want us to do anyway. I mean, I thought the you know the you made a little joke of it at the start, but the Jeremy Wilson piece in the Telegraph. 
you know, it really annoyed me, really annoyed me when they're talking mm. about, you know, the Super Bowl and how great it is and the football equivalent is the, the Champions League final, the Champions League final, they said. And, you know, we're, we're behind Unai Emery and we can cross-pollinate with the coach of the, the L.A. Rams. I mean, what a load of fucking bullshit. You know, buzzword bollocks is what that was and soundbite nonsense from, from Josh Kroenke. How can they talk about getting to a Champions League final when they won't back the coach in the January transfer window in his efforts to just get back into the competition itself. And they're talking about the Champions League final. It makes you wonder what kind of world these fuckers are living in at all. Are they living in anything that is approaching the real world or do they have any genuine understanding of how difficult a job it is not just for Emery, but for any coach to come in and get this team back into the top four with the limited resources available to him. I just found no, it I, staggering. No, I can't think they do. I can't think they do. I mean, the idea of talking about being in the Champions League final when we're not even in the Champions League is so preposterous and feels so far away. I think that... I mean, genuinely, sometimes I think, you know, they come from a background of American sport, which has a draft system, which essentially kind of helps to kind of reset the balance every year. Um, that doesn't exist in English sport. No. And I, I feel like sometimes there's not a recognition of the scale of the, the mountain that we have to climb to be at that level. The reality is in order to to level the playing field or at least catch up with the, the teams ahead of you, you either have to invest heavily or you have to be really fucking clever in the transfer market. And we are neither of those things. There were signs that we were going that direction with Sven Mislintat. And we've talked about Terrera and Genduzi as signings that he identified. Uh, you know, young players who could come in and really add something to this team, um, not just in terms of their quality and potential, but their attitude and the way that they play the game. Uh, and the fact that they both come in for relatively small transfer fees for a club like Arsenal, it's crucial that we're able to operate in that way. And we're letting that guy go, or that guy's gone because of what's gone on behind the scenes. You know, they didn't, they just didn't dig what Sven did. You know, for whatever reason, there's a clash of personalities there. He likes to operate in one way. The club don't want him to operate in that way. And Sanyehi has come out on top. And there is now a big responsibility on that guy. You know, I know you alluded to it last week that maybe he didn't want to make his transfer moves in January uh, because he would be the guy who's being judged on them. But he yeah. is now head of football, head of football. So what happens in terms of recruitment, what happens in terms of player sales, what happens in terms of squad management, in conjunction, we assume, to a certain extent with Unai Emery, who will have an input into the decision-making there, he's the guy whose neck is on the line when it comes to what happens in the transfer market. Absolutely. And, and you know, thinking forward, I keep thinking about September the 1st this year, if Arsenal haven't done the business that we think they need to do, you know, it's not going to be a pretty sight in North London. Um, what about this question? Because there is kind of a, a little bit, I think, of, you know, hashtag Emery out sentiment out there. And I think we should reflect that and acknowledge it. So what would Arsene do, who's at OAW Gunner, I'm sure is completely impartial in this debate, says, are there any circumstances under which the new manager shouldn't get a second season? What about don't improve our performance or establish a style of play 
alienate our best player, force out the sky scouting guru, sign Dennis Suarez, then play him, finish sixth. Hashtag Oscar Sextra. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one view of it. It is one view. What do you think about that? Do you think that there's um, merit in that? Like I said, I think it's reasonable to be critical of a manager and the decisions he makes. I don't think there's anything wrong with being critical of it. It depends what you really expect, though. And I think you have to look at maybe the, the bigger picture. Like, I do feel like after six months... If people are calling for the manager's head, even if they have reservations about the way that the team is operating and if they don't believe in his style of play or anything else, six months is no time, really. Mm. And above that, you know, we, we've touched on the, the issues that he's faced and the lack of backing that he's had. You know, I would challenge any manager to lose three important players to long-term injuries in a season and get no backing from the club in the transfer market in terms of a replacement and deal with it as if it wasn't a problem. You that know? is crazy, isn't it? I it, mean, I think it, it's fucking it hasn't mental. been talked about enough, really, that we lost three first-team players, two of which were guaranteed starters at the point that we lost them, one of which I think was close. You know, Welbeck was really someone who was being used a lot. By but he him. was involved. Whether he was starting or not, he was involved in almost every game. Yeah, well, came back. off the bench, and we know that that matters a lot to Emery. His options off the bench, so yeah, for him to not get any of those players really replaced, and to be not given any money to spend, is kind of maddening. And I do think that part of the consequence of that is I don't think you can dismiss Emery after one season because I don't think he's been sufficiently backed for us to be able to properly judge him. Yeah, absolutely, and also I don't think things are that bad that it merits. Um, a dismissal. Like, if Arsenal finished sixth this season, it would be really annoying and frustrating and I want us to do better, but is it really uh, a reflection on Emery as much as a reflection on the kind of squad we have and the kind of investment we've made into that squad? I mean... Uh, I like, if know, we I mean, finish look, behind... Okay, yeah. the, the, the one argument you could make is Tottenham based on what they've spent or not spent, and they haven't bought a single player this season. And Pochettino's doing a pretty fucking incredible job. And they're a very annoying team right now because of all the late goals and the late wins that they're getting. But he has been there for three and a half, four years. Is he longer than that? So he's had a chance to to mould a squad and a group of players, and in particular a first maybe 13, 14 players, who he's been very lucky for the most part, to have kept fit. I know he's without Ali and he's without Kane at the moment, but, you know, uh, the bastards are are coping, unfortunately, better than I thought they would. But, you know, based on the resources of the team and what's been put into them, you know, Manchester United uh, uh, with, with all their wealth, Chelsea with all their wealth, Liverpool, again, four years into the Klopp project, Manchester City, because simply because they're Manchester City, you know, what is the expectation, the realistic expectation for for Arsenal and for an Arsenal stripped of three really key players? Um, and I don't think as yet we've really felt the repercussions of, of Bellerin's injury yet because he's only been injured a couple of weeks, you know? No, I mean, I think that will come home to roost. But that that is the problem. If we do finish sixth, I mean, a lot of people at the start of the season probably would have thought 
we'd finish sixth. A yeah. lot of people probably think we've got the sixth best team. So I don't think he's dramatically underperforming Emery. He's just not provided, uh, you know, a miraculous solution, which maybe there's someone out there who can, but I think you've got to give him more time. Really, I think you do have to, and I think you've got to give him backing. And I say that fully in the knowledge that he might not get it from a financial point of view. Yeah, I mean, did you see the stories? I don't know how accurate they are, but, you know, the idea that we'll have money to spend in the summer, but it might only be 40 million. I mean, what the fuck do you do with 40 million in well, this transfer market? Well, we didn't market? spend it all on Perisic, I guess. But, uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's... We were never going to do that. We were never going to do that anyway. No, I think with a bit of distance, looking at what we were doing in January, you know, the Carrasco deal and the Perisic deal, everything you hear about those negotiations, to me, says... Arsenal were just looking for a quick fix. I mean, they were looking to make the best of a situation where they were basically told they couldn't buy anybody. Mm. Um, and, you know, they've ended up with the Dennis Suarez deal. That's actually not a bad one, really, going forward. But, I, yeah, I if 40 million, I mean, what would you get for that? You'd get two, one and a half top players, maybe. Maybe. I mean, Maybe. I do use the word top very loosely, to be honest. Well, I mean, we got Lucas Torreira for 26 million and that's, a, you know, a, a very good deal. That's a very Well, the good thing deal. is, yeah, you could get a Torreira and a couple of Genduzis yeah. if you've got the scouting team. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. And I do wonder what happened, if what happened in January was affected by what was going on behind the scenes. Like, it, it's it's... It's been made clear to me that the the Sven issue has been ongoing for some time. This wasn't mm. just a thing that happened all of a sudden. It's been happening for a while. So maybe Sven was the guy who could find you a young right back that we could have brought in. If we don't have anyone at youth level, maybe there's a you know somebody on Sven's list who could come in and you know play for the rest of this season and do a better job than the options we have right now. And when Bellerin is fit, you know, he's he's behind Bellerin in the pecking order, but then you have a, a fight and a competition between those two players. Mm. You know, I've... Uh... Uh, 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 we did have this question from Matthew Cooper, who's at Cooper M on Twitter. Um, and he said, if Emery isn't backed in the summer and we don't make the top four, then what was the point of sacking Wenger? And I would just say, in answer to that, I, I don't think anything this season changes for me, that decision. Because ultimately, no. whether Emery's the right man or he's not the right man, we are at least on a path forward, you know, a path towards change. And I do think I would rather watch us doing this season than any of the last five, really. Yeah, I agree. It, you know, if Emery is struggling this season, it doesn't mean that Wenger should have stayed because his struggles were particular you know he had kind of lost the dressing room a bit or the messages that he was trying to get through on the training ground weren't getting through you think about how bad we were away from home last season we've we've been better not brilliant but better on the road this season we're yeah. still only three points off fourth we're still in the Europa League you know it feels it always feels more gloomy after a defeat and I think as well the the fact that the gulf between us and Manchester City was so obvious in the second half yesterday. It's natural for people to feel a bit downhearted and a bit disenchanted by that. Um, and maybe after two or three wins, we'll feel a little bit more upbeat about our chances. That's just the reality of being a fan and, you know, reacting to to things as and when they happen. You know, your sure. opinion on things in football can can alter radically from one week to the next. 
based on what happens to us and what we do and also what happens around us. Things that are out of our control also have an impact on on how we're going to finish this season. You know, the, the performance of other teams mm. and stuff like that. So um, I was going to ask a question here. Um, okay, this one comes from Nicholas Cardahi Car- uh, on Facebook. We've all seen Iwobi come in the side and we hailed it and saw a young talent that could flourish. Since then, do you see Iwobi's progress in the way that we imagine? Does he have a place in our future and should we sell him? And there's uh, well, another one. Hang on, let me have another one here. On. I just... Uh, boom, boom, boom. I'm just going to try and find it here because it was on... Uh, it was on Facebook as well. Uh, uh, Rukon Ali, what does Emery, like Wenger before him, see in Iwobi? Very basic question, but yeah, I mean that's an easier one to answer. I think in some ways. Um, so I feel like I, <laughs> I feel like I think Alex Iwobi's better at football than a lot of Arsenal fans do, because you know any time he plays, I feel like you see a lot of criticism of him. Uh, and I, I don't really understand it. Like I know that he's not a winger in the sort of or a wide forward like you know Salah or Mane, who's sort of scoring loads of goals and providing loads of end products. But I think he's a pretty handy footballer. And I think what he offers at Emery is someone who carries the ball. I mean, I, I don't think we have another player in the squad who carries the ball in the way that Iwobi does. Um, a dribbler, basically. I. I I can't think of one if we do. No. I mean, I think what Emery sees in Iwobi is a player who scored a couple of goals this season and got a seven assists. And like you, has qualities that we we don't really have. I think Mkhitaryan can, can do it as well, but he's been out injured. I mean, I tend to agree with you. I think there are limitations to his game. I think there are frustrations about his game. I think in some ways he's become a bit of a lightning rod because we look at Iwobi and we see him in the team being asked to do a particular job that we all can kind of see we'd be better if we had a better player doing that job. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think he's a really useful squad player and somebody who deserves a place in the squad, but who, if you were really honest about it, at this moment in time, shouldn't necessarily be starting every game, which he is. And when he doesn't play well, I'm not sure it's necessarily criticism of Iwobi for what he is, but criticism of based around what he isn't or what we would like to have in that position. I think if you look at Iwobi and what was his best period in the team, for me it was you know a couple of years ago when he was playing on the left-hand side of a front four that had Meza Ozil next to him, Alexis Sanchez up top, and Theo Walcott on the right wing. Mm. And that you know we played that system against Chelsea. I remember we were in New York, uh, and he had an outstanding game that day. And what he did so well was link the play and provide that sort of smoothness to our game that you know. We had players like Alexis, we had players like Walcott, like Ozil, who were capable of providing the finishing touches, you know, the the, the final ball or the the, the shot. Mm. And he was sort of the, to borrow the Robert Pires phrase, the oil in the engine, you know, and that's not to compare him to Pires, but he's a brilliant continuity player. He's someone who can take the ball under pressure, find people. And I think the problem is that to an extent, he's being asked to kind of do all those jobs. You know, he's being asked to be Walcott as well as Iwobi to an extent, and he's not. Yeah. He never will be. Um, but I, I read an interesting, there's a piece on Football Whispers this week 
sort of breaking down his stats and looking at what he provides because I think one of the big criticisms of him is his numbers uh, and they were actually looking at I mean look it's a bit tenuous but they were looking at the expected uh, expected goals assisted so like in terms of the quality of chances that he lays on he's in the top six players in the Premier League who play week in week out who, so, who, can you remember who was ahead of him uh, I know he was above David Silva I forget who was ahead of him he came, I think, ninth, but then two of those players were Alexis and Giroud, who had only played a few games, so their stats were skewed. But in terms of expectances per 90 for players who played more than 10 games, I think he was sixth. So, you know, it's not like he's not doing anything. And I think his partnership with Kalasinac has been... I think people get irritated because we're reliant on it. But I think you can't also then just write it off and say, we don't need it. You know? Yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree. It is probably one of the, I mean, look, maybe it says a lot that that's one of the positives of the season, but they do have a relationship out there. You know, they do connect well. Um, yesterday I'm with was you. A, I think, go on. you know, I think that, do I envisage a Premier League winning side with Alex Awobi week playing in, week every out? single game? Probably not. No. But we are sixth. <laughs> and I also think that if you did put Awobi up for sale, I, and I get, I, I'll probably take pelts for saying this, but I think there would be some pretty decent teams who would say, well, he is a really useful squad player. Yeah. And I think I think that is sort of what he is, but the, we don't have the better players. That's exactly it. And it well, comes back... some will say we do. Some will say we have Mesut Ozil and Aaron Ramsey. Sure, but, but not, like... They can't do the same thing. They don't play opinion. where Iwobi plays. It's not that yeah. we don't have better players in the squad, but, you know, in the... In the job that he's asked to do most weeks, leaving aside yesterday, which was a job he, he clearly really isn't suited for at all, and he didn't help himself with with a rank piece of carelessness in the opening thirty seconds of the game, um, you know that there we don't have better than him to do that job in this squad. Maybe Dennis Suarez is that guy, but you know I, I I'll wait and see in that mm. regard. Um, so I think it's more about what we don't have. And when Iwobi is the guy trying to give us what we don't have, people get frustrated with that. I think he's a, uh, he's a, a good squad player. Um, and I think, again, he's maybe the wrong target for, for some of the out, outrage. Just a question quickly here. I know we talked about Lick Steiner a lot in the f- part one, but this is Nicholas Arm who says, if I'm not mistaken, all of City's goals came down our right-hand side. Do you think Emery will consider giving Janko a run out of the team if uh, Maitland-Niles isn't available, considering how vulnerable we are with Lick Steiner in the team? Yeah, Robin Williams, who's at Robin W with a load of numbers, uh, says, what are we going to do about right-back, uh, the right-back situation for the remainder of the season? Lick Steiner is a big issue in this team. Lichtstein is a big issue, but the absence of uh, Hector Bellerin, the injury to Hector Bellerin, is a very big issue. Um, would I be averse to seeing Jenkinson given a go? No, at this point. Um, I think Lichtsteiner's struggles are are obvious. We don't really have anybody else. Mm. Maitland-Niles is injured. Um he may be back soon, though, right? It doesn't sound like a big injury. No, I think it was a bruised knee or something like that. So yeah. he could well be back, and he's certainly the other option. Um, but, you know, in the absence of anything else, what can we do? What can we do? I mean, do you think maybe more regular football would help Licksteiner, or would it just continue to to expose his shortcomings? I think, you know, 
we know that Emery would, I think, rather play Maitland-Niles. He did, didn't he? When the opportunity arose, he didn't put Littsteiner back in. It was United game, wasn't it? That we first had to play without Bellerin. Mm. So I think Maitland-Niles is the number one choice. And I think that's probably right. I mean, both Littsteiner and Jenkinson, kind of continuing a theme, don't really belong to Arsenal's future. Yeah. Um, Maitland-Niles might. And for that reason... I'd sort of rather see him given given a go. Okay, well, okay. Just following on from that, um, Anuraj Bagat, who's at Anuraj Gunnar, says, "Is it time to give Mavropanos some game time over Mustafi? Because it surely couldn't get any worse." <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, I sort of enjoyed Mavropanos' little cameo yesterday. There was one pass that he attempted to play out to the left. Do you remember where he just sort of? He hit the ball about as hard as I've seen anyone ever hit. I can't remember just, it exactly. Uh, no. He just smashed like a crossfield pass. It was like it looked like a shot from like his own penalty area. <laughs> um, uh, listen, I think that Mavropanos is presumably the reason we didn't buy a centre half in January. It's the only discernible reason, and I think given that, I think you've got to give them a go. At some point, you've got to find out what we've got on our hands here, um, and I. I don't believe he can be worse than Mustafi. So, I mean, it looks like Mustafi's not got a serious injury yesterday. He does, without wishing to be cruel, have a bit of a habit of picking up injuries in problematic games, I seem to recall. He has this weird tendency to look like he's really injured and then limp around for a bit and then be fine. Mm. And it's not just in problematic games. It happens to him quite regularly and maybe that's uh, a credit to his uh, durability or or whatever else you might want to call it um i think well, I, I think it's partly him being like a 5 foot 10 center half and getting battered probably most of the game but yeah uh, yeah i have no real desire to see him play much more for arsenal i know we spoke or you wrote on the blog recently about lucas perez maybe being sort of from an economic point of view, the worst signing in Arsenal's history. If we do try and sell Mustafi this summer, I think that might get beaten. I, and I didn't say that about Lucas Perez being the worst signing. I just cited it as a as, a, uh, as an example of how we've spent badly. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. And I meant from an economic point of view, not a, uh, yeah, a I mean, quality point of view. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're, the £35 million on Mustafi will go down in, in history as... Some of the worst money we've we've ever spent. If Mavropanos is fit, uh, let's give him a let's give him a crack. Let's give him a crack. I just can't endure much more Mustafi and remain in any way a sane individual. I think I think he might break my brain if I see him do something like he did yesterday against Manchester City. Look, you know he's been here nearly three years now, and we all can see what kind of a player we've got which is not a particularly good one, not a particularly smart one, one who on his day can play quite well. But in general, I don't think he is a component of any kind of coherent, well-organized, what's the word? Parsimonious defense. That's the word I was looking for. I think as long as he plays, you're going to have a defense that's shaky. And if Mavropanos makes a few mistakes along the way, he's still only 20, whatever he is, uh, 21. Uh, the learning curve is greater with him. Uh, and if he, if, he, if he doesn't do it when he comes into the team and we're forced back into playing Mustafi, then 
it tells us something more about what we need to do this summer. Remember, Socrates will be back as well towards yeah. the end of February. Also, in the meantime, let's give the guy a chance. Let's give him a chance, see what he can do. We've got three games against, on paper, relatively... Um, I'm not going to say easy because no, no game is easy, but on paper games you would expect Arsenal to win. So if we can't try him in those games ahead of a guy who has consistently shit the bed, then when can we? I think that the, the one thing counting against it really, I think, is the loss of Bellerin. In that, you know, Mavropanos will yeah, be playing yeah. as the right-sided centre-half and maybe, maybe Emery would think, can I put Mavropanos and Maitland-Niles as half my... Mavropanos and Jenkinson. Uh, exactly. So, I mean, to be honest, I'd rather see Mustafi at right back. You know, it, if if that's the way it works, if he shuts no, him out no, right no, back. no, 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 just no, 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 no. Can it be worse than Lichtsteiner? Yeah, I'd say it could. Mm, mm. Not sure, not sure. We'll see, won't we? What is the next game? Huddersfield? Huddersfield on Saturday. So it's Licksteiner or it's Jenkinson or it's Maitland-Niles. Mm, not a great <laughs> selection. <sighs> yeah. Huddersfield, should, come know, on. Well, I was going to say we should beat Huddersfield, but then I, I stopped myself. Yeah, thanks. I think that's good. I also think we should leave it here because we've been going a while. We need to get this podcast out there and into people's ears uh, because they need to share in in all this uh, hijinks that we've enjoyed for the last hour and a half or or whatever it's been. Remember, if you would like to give us a review or a rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate that. Your ratings push us up the charts and give the podcast a bit more visibility. So if you uh, fancy doing that for us, that would be great. All going well. And I say this cautiously, there may well be another podcast today, if not tomorrow. And if there is, it will be available first to Arsblog members on Patreon, which you can sign up for, patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. It costs five euros a month, plus VAT if you're in the EU. You get lots of extra content and it helps support everything else that we do on the site. So if you fancy getting involved in that, patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. And uh, we'll be back with more podcasts soon, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Very soon. Very soon. Or not, but definitely soon. Bye. (laughs) Bye.